If you're joining us online or if you've just arrived with Dave, I welcome you. My name is Joel. Welcome to Heart City Church. It's my absolute privilege to serve you. Um, you're joining us. We're in the sermon series called The Marks of a True Church. Today we come to the second mark, the sacraments, baptism, and what we see here, the Lord's Supper. And we're about to read Matthew 26, where Jesus establishes this meal. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. You'll find it on page 5 in your bulletin. Um, so we turn there. Let me. If you're not yet Christian, but not yet Christ follower, you may wonder, what is this meal all about? Or if you are, you may wonder, why do we need this meal every Sunday? Well, the first thing we need to understand is our tragic condition. Our tragic condition. If you don't actually understand that, then this won't make any sense to you. What is our tragic condition? Well, one poet describes it this way. Broken cutters, broken saws, broken buckles, broken laws, broken dishes, broken parts. Streets are filled with broken hearts, broken bodies, broken bones, broken voices on broken phones. Take a deep breath, feel like you're choking. Everything is broken. The poet there is Bob Dylan, who gets it. Friends, we are in a world that has been subjected to futility, and all of us are in bondage due to corruption. Humanity has been kicked and beaten by sin and death. That's why we're all afraid, whether we want to admit it or not, and why we snap at each other. Our tragic condition, friends, is why Jesus gave us this meal. And let me give you an illustration to help us get this. So I went to the vet. I took my dog to the vet recently. And in the waiting room, I struck up a conversation with a woman who had this little dog between her legs, just afraid. And I asked her what was going on. She said, oh, this is a shelter dog. He was abused. He was beaten, abandoned. In fact, he was left in this shelter. If it wasn't a no-kill shelter, they would have they would have done in, and when I went in there and saw him, my heart went out to this little dog, and she took him in. She says it took a long time to convince this little dog that he was loved and that he was safe. That's a good question. How do you get a beaten, abandoned, broken animal to feel safe, to know that you love them when you bring them into your house? What do you do? Well, as they cower in the corner, you hold out food to them. And you say, come here. Come here. And you know what happens? They smell the food and they start to slink forward. And then they run back to the corner ground, trembling. So you continue to hold out the food. Come here. And it may take a few days. It may take weeks. But one day... As you call them, as you coax them, they're going to get closer. And with their eyes on you the whole time, they're going to take that food from you. And they will run back to the corner again. But over time, they're going to learn to trust you, that this is safe, and that you mean to do them well. You mean to nourish them. And who knows? They may end up in your lap one day. <laughs> Friends, that is why Jesus institutes this meal right here in Matthew 26 because his heart went out to us in our condition. He sees our brokenness. He sees our fear. He sees our hostility towards him. We show our teeth. 
The Bible actually tells us that we have become like beasts. Psalm 73. Yet he still wants you to draw near, convinced of his love, as he seeks to nourish you with certain hope that he plans to restore your humanity, to make you happy and whole in him. Let me pray before we read this passage of scripture. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for sending your son into the world to become that true bed bread we needed from heaven. Lord Jesus, we thank you for giving us signs of your grace that can be felt, seen, and tasted. And if we haven't truly tasted, we ask that by your spirit, we may trust you and believe your love. If we have believed, may our eyes see anew the great saving work of our great high priest, our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Matthew 26, starting in verse 29 or 26. Now hear the word of our God. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Friends, today we are in the second part of a three-part sermon series called Marks of a True Church. Some of you here are members at Heart City. Some of us may be visiting. Maybe you're looking for a church. If so, I'm so glad, and I'm here to help you. We would love it if you chose to be part of the Heart City family. But we know that to reach all kinds of people, it takes all kinds of churches. The kingdom of God is bigger than one church or even bigger than one denomination. So if you decide that Heart City is not the church for you and you visited, well, I am happy to recommend to you other good churches, pastors I know personally. But all of my recommendations will be based on a church having these three marks. Number one, the faithful preaching of the word of God, the soul-saving gospel. Number two, the sacraments, rightly administered, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And number three, discipline to promote purity and your protection from sin and the devil. Now you may be thinking, Joel, why these three? Aren't there other marks? I mean, why not care for the poor be a mark of the church or forgiveness or or joyful worship? Great questions. Think of the church as God's house. What do you actually need to have a house? Three things. A foundation, walls, and a roof. Those things are essential, right? Or it's not a house. Now, after we have a house, we can bring in a large table to feed the poor. We can put up pictures to beautify it. We can have all kinds of things to adorn the house, but that's not part of the essential structure. So we want those things, but that's not part of the essential structure. You see, without the foundation given by the apostles and prophets, anything we built here is going to crumble. Without a roof, <laughs> we're going to have a problem when the man upstairs decides to bring the storm. Without walls, well, we have no protection from outside intruders. We must have these three things, 
preaching the sacraments and discipline. And, and this is what I really want to stress in this sermon series, those three things are proofs that Christ is present here with us. Because that's what we want. We want Jesus here with us. Anybody can put up a sign that says church. But Jesus says in Revelation 2.5 that he removes his lampstand from certain places that still have that sign. So how can you tell the difference between whether Jesus is absent or present? We talked about this last week. Well, the Bible teaches that preaching, the sacraments, and discipline, they actually reveal Christ is here in our midst. And specifically, he is our true prophet in preaching. He is our high priest in the sacraments. And he is our king in discipline, in ruling and defending us from all of his and our enemies. So we're going to start with the Lord's Supper today in our second sermon series. And I'm just going to remind you right off the bat, here at the Lord's Supper, Jesus is the host. I would say this almost every week. I'm just the waiter. Jesus is the host of this meal, and he establishes this supper as we see in Matthew 26. I'll read it again. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, not a single one of us here would get how shocking this would be to the original hearers, the disciples. They're at a Passover meal, a 1,500-year tradition. And the main dish is lamb. The main dish is lamb. And Jesus, at this point, pushes aside the lamb and sets bread and wine in its place. And he says, hey, from now on, we're going to do this. Can you imagine the shock? Probably not. The closest we can get is maybe think of Thanksgiving, all right? It's a tradition, right? And one of your family members says, um, we're changing the holiday, and by the way, it's all about me now. Uh, forget that turkey you spent all last night preparing. I just ordered a pizza. Pizza's going to be the new dish for my holiday from now on. But that still doesn't really capture it. Because the Passover lamb was no turkey. You have to understand what that's about. You recall the original Passover. God had told the Israelites in slavery in Egypt to take a spotless lamb into their home. Can you imagine bringing it in like a pet for a week? And then you have to kill it on that last day. And then you spread its blood on the doorposts outside the doorframe. Why? Because the angel of death is coming on that night to kill every firstborn child in Egypt. And that lamb and the blood on the door makes all the difference in the world. That night, can you imagine being there when you start to hear the neighbors screaming, your Egyptian neighbors, as they're finding their loved ones are dead? Every Israelite would know that the only reason they were spared that night was it better because, oh, I'm a better person than the Egyptians. No way, you're not thinking that. Uh-uh. The only difference between you and them, the only reason you were spared was because the angel of death saw blood on lumber. Lamb's blood on lumber. That was a sign. But apparently not just for the angel that night, but on a future night that we find in Matthew 26. 
Jesus is saying the sacrificial lamb and the bloody wood was a sign pointing forward to him. And in fact, now that he is here, they no longer need the sign. Lamb out of here. The sacrifice of the lamb on this night. Because while they don't get it at this point, just after this, Jesus is going to become the final sacrifice. The Passover lamb slain. He's going to have his own blood shed on the hard lumber of the cross. Blood on lumber was going to bring salvation to them. And that's why they have this new meal. It's all about him. The bread is the sign. It represents his body. The wine is the sign of his blood. Poured out for forgiveness for our sins. They're going to be spared on the later ultimate judgment day because of his sacrifice. Did you notice how Jesus commands? He urges his disciple. He says, take it and eat. Drink. These are commands. Why? Think any of them felt resistance? It'd be kind of strange to have someone, even Jesus, who you respect, suddenly say, here's bread, it's my flesh, eat it. Here's wine, it's blood, my blood, drink it up. But it is for their good. And he knows it, even if they don't know it yet, that they take, eat, and drink what he is offering to them in pure love. I usually read 1 Corinthians 11 when, I, when we have the Lord's Supper, where Paul tells us he received this tradition from the Lord. I, I delivered to you what I received from the Lord Jesus. We are to do this in remembrance of Christ, what he has done, as a help so that we'll be grateful for what he has done to save us. This is a necessary meal that Jesus wants us to celebrate regularly. That's why we have it every week. Our leadership team did not get together one night and say, we need a new ceremony, Dave. And Dave's like, I got a great idea. A new way to encourage people. Let's hand out little chunks of bread and teeny weeny little bits of wine and that'll get everybody excited right before the end of service. No, we didn't come up with this. The Lord's Supper is a sacrament Jesus gave us to show forth his death on the cross so we could be forgiven of our sins. A weekly reminder to be thankful. His past trauma means our future healing. His death means our eternal life. The Lord's Supper shows us again and again his sacrifice. Now the second sacrament that Jesus established is baptism. If you actually turn a few pages on Matthew 28 or look in your bulletin, this is actually Jesus' final command to his disciples before he sends up into heaven. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus establishes baptism as his second sacrament. And baptism is a sign like the Lord's Supper. Signs always point us to a reality. There's a reality Kind of like road sign you may have saw on the way here. Elkhart, five miles. It's leading you to the reality. You're now in Elkhart. Kids, you heard about Noah last week. And God put a sign in the sky after the rain's done, a rainbow to say, oh, I'll never keep the rain going nonstop. It's a promise. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, they're actually signs, though, of a greater reality, a spiritual reality that's far greater than this world that preceded it and will continue on. And both of them show us, namely, 
our high priest Jesus and all the benefits he offers to us. Baptism, the washing or sprinkling of water is a sign of the cleansing of our hearts from evil. And it's also a seal. Sacraments are signs and seals. We've got to keep both of these in front of us. So what's, what's a seal? Well, I have some diplomas on my wall. I got an ordination on my wall. And they all have a seal saying that my education, my ordination are authentic. You'll find seals of approval on products you buy. That means it testifies this is a trusted thing, you can, something you can trust. Now, does that mean a seal is guaranteed? No, I'm pretty sure I could make a fake diploma that would impress all of you, <laughs> right? A seal of paper does not magically make me educated or ordained any more than a person getting wet makes them an actual believer. If it did, well, kids, I'd borrow one of your water guns and I'd go through town and, boy, I'd be baptizing everyone in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'd get the whole town saved. But it doesn't work that way. You see, there's a difference between efficacy and validity. And the debates over these signs often tilt one way or the other wrongly. Some thinking a baby being baptized, that automatically makes them a regenerate believer. It's efficacious. No, that's not necessarily the case. Maybe. But this is why we always encourage parents. This is why you need to train them up, read them scripture, pray with them, show them Jesus. Others think, well, infant baptism can't be valid because a baby can't profess faith. Therefore, they can't receive the grace. You see, the emphasis here is on our response. But that's wrong, too. Baptism is about showing us that God acts. God is the one baptizing us. God is showing forth his promises. The sacraments are seals that God gives to guarantee you his promises are genuine. They're for sure. They're the real deal. This is why we don't baptize again. I've been asked this. You know why I don't do that? That would suggest that God took back his promise. That God back back on his word. And that's not true. The sacraments are signs and seals that God's promises are everlasting. The Lord's Supper, it guarantees the covenant of forever forgiveness of sins. Baptism is a seal that God places his triune name upon you forever. What a joy it was earlier this year to witness God stamp his name on Jesse, on Emma Lynn, on Nathan. God placed, stamped his seal of approval on you guys. So all you have to do now is to remember who you are and who you belong to. I like to think about baptism as like, well, you've just put on a team jersey now. You're now on team Jesus. And you're different from everybody else in the world in whatever jerseys they're wearing. So you don't take the identities that our culture wants to label you with. No, because you're new creations in Jesus Christ. And the church is to affirm this by administering the sacraments. That is the importance of the sacraments. I also want us to continue to realize they show us Jesus is present here. The sacraments show us he's here as our faithful high priest. Look at Hebrews 10. I'm going to read 11 through 14 in Hebrews 10. We read this. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Well, this is an awesome passage. 
But I know Jesus being a high priest is a really foreign concept to modern ears. So try to lean in for a minute and take this in because the first hearers of this letter would be jumping out of their sandals when they hear this because the priesthood meant everything to them. The priesthood meant everything. William Bridge actually says, I love this quote, Christ's office as priest is the great storehouse and supply of all the grace and comfort that we have on this side of heaven. Do you think of Christ's priesthood that way? We need to get our minds around this. We saw last week that God chose prophets and made them his mouthpiece to the people. The prophets were the connection, speaking God's word to the people. They brought God's life-giving promises and instructions to need people. God established priests to go the other way. They actually went from the people to God. If you read Leviticus 9, you'll actually see the establishment of this. Priests would enter God's holy presence as the representative of the people, of us, offering the sacrifices we needed for our sins, seeking peace with God because we're all estranged from God due to our sins, due to our rebellion. The reason sacrifices were brought, why didn't he sacrifice? The wages of sin is death. God is a holy God. He requires perfection. So the animal was actually given, God gave this sacrifice because he would then see that he's paying the price. He's dying so that you might live. This was the holy, and the priests were the holy representatives bringing these sacrifices. But there was a problem in the days when the Hebrews, Hebrews was written. Yes, I do believe that it happened before the temple went down. You see, the priests in this place, in this day, they had been put in place not by God anymore. Actually, the corrupt king was now the one putting the priests in place. How much confidence would you have in this day if these guys, guys raised up by politicians, were the ones making peace between you and God? see a few of us laughing. Yeah, it's been election week, right? <laughs> Let's be real for a minute. Really real. Even the best priests could not take away your sins. Dave talked about it earlier because they always die and the work never stops. The point the author is making here, he's trying to show you the futility of all these daily sacrifices. They never actually accomplished what was needed. See, you and I, we're racking up debt our whole lives. Friends, humanity, every one of us, we have been hijacked by sin. And yeah, it's hard to face. We like to just, oh, I'll look at others. I'm better than them, so I feel... No. W.H. Auden captures it well, our condition in a night scene, in a poem about a night scene in a bar. He writes this. Faces along the bar cling to their average day. The lights must never go out. The music must always play lest we should see where we are, lost in a haunted wood, children afraid of the night, who have never been happy or good. I think this poet had a moment of clarity. I see myself in that scene. Do you? I buy into the lie all the time. One of the marks of our culture is to maximize the trivial and minimize the consequential. Increasingly, we label evil things as good. We change the labels on things as though putting a new label on it changes the reality of what it is. But self-flattery, ignoring conscience, medicating the pain all the time, 
That does nothing to remove the hurt, the hate, the unhappy. And it does nothing to fix our estrangement with God. Friends, the good news is that the Son of God became a human high priest and he entered into our haunted wood. Jesus gets us. He's come to our earth. He understands. He was tempted like us in every way, but without sin. Just think about that. C.S. Lewis actually gives the illustration of, of a man walking against the wind. Each of us were walking against the wind. But when the wind of temptation gets to be too much, what happens to us? We fall over, right? We lie down. We've never known the full cost of enduring. But Jesus came into our haunted wood against the full force of a hurricane and <laughs> never went down. He understands our temptations better than we do because he took them on full force. And he paid the ultimate price then after he completed a perfect life. The perfect representative is now before our holy God in heaven. And he's done it on our, he's going there on our behalf, not only to offer the perfect sacrifice, but to be the perfect sacrifice. We are all on our way the moment we first believed to being made happy and whole in him. Anybody here like to be perfectly happy and whole? Just like for a minute in our lives? That's actually what our high priest is up to even now. He's working that in you and for us. Our catechism talks about Christ fulfills the office of a priest and is once offering up his life, himself to God as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God and in making constant intercession for us. Jesus Christ is still active right now on our behalf. He didn't just sit down after his sacrifice, say, I'm done. No, he's constantly making intercession for us, constantly praying. That's good news, especially for me. And you feel like you had some pretty weak prayers this week? Yeah, Mike's raising his hand. Oh, that prayer was of no use at all. That bounced off the ceiling. I love this. J.C. Rowell says this about your prayers when you feel like they're weak. He says, place them in Christ's hands. And he makes them look so different in heaven that you would hardly even know them anymore. So let's continue this passage in Hebrews. Verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I believe that this is the climax of the whole letter of the Hebrews. And did you notice how it incorporates the flesh and blood and the washing of our bodies with water, the two sacraments? The glory is that we can draw near to God because the benefits that come with our new great high priest. I remember we were taught evangelism as children. It started out with tracks, you know, you just hand out as many tracks as you can, you know, and eventually if you shoot enough out, you're going to knock one down, you know, and you hope to get somebody saved. I remember a, a, a thing that we did where you would then actually get in conversations with people who did not yet believe in Christ, and you would try to work in the way, work in the, this question of the conversation. You'd say, so, hey, do you believe in heaven? It's great. 
question asked when turbulence on a plane, you know, or, hey, do you believe in heaven? <laughs> you know? And if they answered yes, and actually you hope they answered yes, because I don't remember what you're supposed to do if they said no. But if they answered yes to that question, I believe in heaven, then you have this follow-up question. How do you get there? How can you be sure that you're going to get in? Incidentally, how would you answer that? If today was the day, how would you know that you are permitted to walk through heaven's gates? Notice all three passages today and talking about that day, the final day. Well, I hope your answer is not, I prayed a prayer. I tried to be really good. In fact, I hope it doesn't even start with the word I. We just sang it before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me, my name is graven on his hands. My soul is purchased by his blood. It's what Jesus did. That's your only way of getting into heaven. The answer to how I get to heaven is not some sorry hope that I did enough. No, my only answer is the blood of Christ and his continuing work even now on my behalf. It's not what I have done, but what he has done and what he continues to do. But Hebrews' point actually is not saying that heaven's some future thing. He's actually saying it's a reality right now that we can draw near by faith, and especially when we gather on Sunday, the Lord's Day, the day of the resurrection. The point is that we can draw near to God right here and right now. Do you realize that? No Old Testament saint could know this experience. They could never experience what we can now after Christ, after his coming. We can come with full assurance of a true heart. That means a new heart. Because there's an inward reality. My heart has been sprinkled clean. Seen visibly in the sign and seal when we wash with baptism. Friends, Christ is here in our midst. Not just speaking from the pulpit when it's faithfully preached. Not just leading us in heavenly worship. He's actually walking up and down the roads right now. Urging you. Encouraging you to draw near to God. To come nearer to Him. Trusting that you're loved, that you're safe, and that God wants to continue and begin to heal you. Will you stay back in the corner resisting? Or will you draw near trusting? That's the question. Since I haven't used enough poets yet, let me give an illustration. Elizabeth Barrett Browning, she was one of the Victorian greats, good stuff. She was the oldest daughter of 12. She actually fell in love with another prof, a poet. His name was Browning, yeah. Her father was a very, very difficult man, and he forbid her to marry. But Elizabeth was so in love that she stole off to Italy and secretly married. You know what her father did? Shunned her. Completely disowned her. Can you imagine? I really admire Elizabeth because she kept at it with the pen, writing weekly love letters to her father, week after week. Remarkable letters. You can read them. They're so beautiful they've been published. And in them you find her doing this again and again. 
She's begging her father, please let us not be estranged. Please draw near to me, father. I love you. Elizabeth wrote him for years. And then one day, a box showed up on her porch. A box from her father. Her eyes lit up. She grabbed it, brought it in. Can you imagine her heart thumping? What was inside this box that her father sent her? She opened it up, peeked inside, and her heart broke. Inside that box was every love letter she'd ever wrote him, all unopened. It's tragic that these absolutely incredible, beautiful letters were never ever seen by the one who was so loved. He kept his heart completely closed to her. What a bummer, Joel. Pastor Joel, what's this sorry story about? Friends, God has written us love letters, love letters, urging you that he wants you to receive these letters, open them up and see that he's inviting you, urging you to draw near. He's saying, come, trust me. I sent my son, my best gift of all, so that you knew I would want to be reconciled to you. I know your fears, he says in them. I know your resistance. He says, I know your hurt. I know your junk. Read the Bible. God gets us. God says, my arms are open and I'm waiting patiently. I'm holding it out. God wants to nourish us. He wants to wash us. He wants to heal us. He wants to restore us to what we're supposed to be, our true humanity. Friends, God does this in a special way. He communicates this through the sacraments. Verse 25, 423, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And all the more as you see the day, capital D, Capital D Day, the day drawing near. So let me ask you in closing. When you hear about the day drawing near, getting closer, is that a happy thought? Or is that a thought that terrifies you if you want to think about it? Well, it should terrify all of us to some degree. Jesus is going to arrive and he's going to wrap up this whole cosmos like an old garment and toss it aside. (laughs) That's a bit scary to think about. But if you have come to trust Jesus, if you have begun to draw near to God through him, then the day of his drawing near is actually the day you're living for. Jesus is calling you and he's holding out his grace. So don't resist his love. Don't resist his heart. You know he loves you and intends to show you that he has a new forever home for you. He has picked you out. He has chosen you. That's the only reason you're here right now this morning. You don't get any credit for being here. Jesus brought you here this morning. And he has a far better world to bring you into than this world that just beats us down the whole of our lives till we're dead. So friends, I just want to encourage us in closing. Let's keep stirring one another up. Let's keep gathering together.
even when others, we see them stray off to lesser feasts, lesser delights. Don't fall for that. Don't become discouraged. Because we know that we're one day closer to being with the one we love, our Lord Jesus. Our Lord Jesus, who has loved us more and better than anyone ever has. The day's drawing near. Draw near to him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to give you our thanks and praise. You've been so good to us. We confess that we often find resistance in our hearts, and I just pray that this will be a day when we begin to lower the defenses, and we begin to just take a few more steps towards you, maybe a lot of steps towards you. We pray for your spirit to work in our hearts. I pray that the gospel seeds planted right now, that they will grow. We pray for water to grow these and for the sun to shine on them so that we may, in fact, begin to make steps forward to being made happy, to being made whole, to being made holy because of the faithful work of our high priest Jesus. If there be any of us who still walk in darkness, we pray that this will be the day they see a great light. And we pray, Father, that we will, as we come to the supper here in a little bit, that we will just discover in a new way the great love that our Lord Jesus has for us. Thank you for all you've done. We pray that we will not leave here with hearts that are still hard, but hearts that are sprinkled clean of an evil conscience. Help us to love our neighbors. Help us to love those in a broken world even better. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.